I want to introduce a friend of mine here, and I'm embarrassing him a little bit, and he's from the foreign country of uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and uh, <laughs> that's my friend Lon Mohat right there. This is Lon, and uh, we were in church together uh, at Estruma Baptist Church, and then I was, I was thrown out, as I recall, <laughs> and uh, so uh, Lon is just a great guy, and uh, he, he is a... Uh, has a salon, a hair salon, amongst other things in Louisiana. And I remember the timeline. I was, Sue and I were reminiscing. We had a special concert with Sandy Patty one night, and the weather was bad or something, and her plane was delayed, and we were doing all kinds of things basically to stall because it was this massive crowd, as I, I recall, assembled in our, our beautiful church there waiting for Sandy Patty to arrive. And finally she came in and... Huff. In fact, one of our members was a state trooper, as I recall, and he picked her up at the airport in his car and exceeded the speed limits to get her to our <laughs> church. We confessed it later. But anyway, so she came in and her hair was just all over the place and Lon took her into one of our rooms and did her up and prettied her up and all that kind of stuff and uh, and got her ready to go and sing. So I remember that. So God has a function for everybody. Uh, does anyone need a little trim? Okay. No. Uh, anyway, that's Lon. He was just a great guy. Huge encouragement uh, to me when I was his pastor and we have remained friends now and he's passing through. His mom is in Granbury, Texas in a facility uh, she has uh, dementia and is being taken care of there, so he came to visit her and going to spend time with us today. So welcome to the One World True Church. <laughs> All right, dear folks, good to see you. Lon taught me words like lanyap. You know what lanyap means? You know what that means? Just a little more. He taught me all kinds of words, but I can't repeat the others. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, folks, we are in Micah, not Malachi. I've been working on this. We're in Micah chapter 4. Take a gander. But go back to chapter 3, last verse, just for a second. Micah 3, last verse. I'll give you a chance to get there. I'll read it to you. just want to point out something striking. Micah 3, verse 12. Listen, therefore, on account of you, the you, if you recall, uh, consist of the religious and political leadership in ancient Israel. They were terrible. They exploited the people allotted to their charge. They milked them for everything they were worth. They were corrupt. Therefore, on account of you, Zion, Zion is used as a figure for Israel, for Jerusalem. It's a hill in Jerusalem. Sometimes it's used to represent the whole. It's a part representing the whole. Therefore, on account of you, Zion will be plowed as a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the temple on which Solomon's temple stood will become high places of a forest. In other words, devastation, degradation, destruction. Okay, that's the end of chapter 3. Now look uh, again at how chapter 4 begins. And it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, same mountain referred to at the end of chapter 3, will be established as the chief of the mountains. 
It will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. What a stark contrast. At the end of chapter 3, it ends with a picture of Jerusalem destroyed. Chapter 4 begins with a picture of Jerusalem restored. How do you account for it? What a juxtaposition. Two verses close to one another. One, destruction of Jerusalem. The other, restoration. You account for it in one word, grace. Uh, The destruction of Jerusalem was due fundamentally to the sin of ancient Israel. There were consequences for their sin, as we are. And so what accounted for the destruction of Jerusalem is the sin of ancient Israel. But what accounts for the restoration of Jerusalem is the grace of Almighty God. You have to see those two things. I emphasize Israel a lot and have been criticized for it actually by some. Um, But I don't understand that because I'm not bringing this up. God is, right? I didn't write Micah. He's talking about Israel, right? It's not, it's not Houston. It's not, sorry. It's not Prairieville, Louisiana, Lon. It's, it's ancient Israel. Uh, why does God have such a record of his transaction with Israel? It's because it mirrors what he's like with us. In God's conduct with Israel, we see a, a very graphic picture of human nature and of divine nature. Human nature. We have a proclivity to sin even though so privileged, as was ancient Israel. Divine nature, he has a proclivity to forgive sin. So though there's a consequence for sin, that's due to human nature, there's a restoration that's due to divine nature. So as God was with Israel, uh, take hope. That's how he is with you, don't you see? When you are at your worst, he's at his best. When Israel is at her worst, he is at his best. Now, there's a second word that explains to me this contrast. One is grace and the other is hope. Please be hopeful about the future, even though the present is a time time of disarray and unsettledness. It's a pretty shaky existence for most of us. Nobody likes what's going on. Uh, Relax. Try not to fall below the line of despair as if uh, no one is piloting the, the aircraft. The Most High God is seated on the throne orchestrating all things towards a a very hopeful end. There will be a time when the kingdom of God will be established, not just in our hearts, but on earth, and we will read about it in this text. Okay, that being, again, just a little refresher, look at verse 6. We'll pick up there because Brother Chuck left off there, around there last week. So verse 6, see how it begins? In that day, which begs the question, what day? Well, you have to go back to verse 1. The last days. In that day, what day, Micah? In the last days, which introduced the chapter. So what we're talking about here is the future. You need to get that. It's about the future. It hasn't taken place yet. It was future from Micah's reference point, And as you will see, it's future from our reference point. Okay. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble who? Those referred to as the lame and the outcasts and even those who I have afflicted. It's a reference to God's ancient covenant people, the Jews. Wow, sad. Now they're referred to as lame and outcasts. What happened? God did it. It says right there. Even to those whom I have afflicted. You say, wait, how do I square this with the love of God? I'll tell you how. What parent, what loving parent doesn't discipline his or her children? 
That's what we have. Now, some would make of this that God is through with Israel. I think you'll see in the text that can't be possible. But you can't see the discipline of Israel by a loving Heavenly Father, not meant to destroy, but to discipline, to perfect. And so because of Israel's sin, God intervenes. Why? He doesn't want us continuing in an unbridled pattern of sin because he loves us too much to let us get away with it. Folks, as he was with Israel, he is with us. I must tell you, God is not going to punish you. Uh, Our Lord Jesus was punished in a way that is sufficient for all of us. Remember, he said it is finished. Remember, he said it is done. He canceled the debt, all the rest. But we're still very much subject to the discipline of a loving Heavenly Father to the extent that we continue in a pattern of unbridled sin. He loves us too much to let us get away with it. So it was he, frankly, who afflicted Israel in this particular sense. So this nation meant to be glorious due to the promises and privileges, prerogatives of God given to her is now reduced to epithet. You're lame, morally lame, spiritually lame. You're exiled. I gave you a place of promise and you can't be in it. That's what happened because God afflicted Israel to break the pattern of sin. But though he afflicted them, please notice in the very verse, it is he who chooses to reassemble them. Does it not say that? I will assemble. That does not look to me as if God is finished with Israel, though at the time Israel seemed to be finished with him. This is always an illustration of grace greater than all our sin. It's a surprise, it seems to me, that God has not annihilated the Jews. It's just a surprise to me. Entrusted with the oracles of God, prophets and apostles sent to us first, given laws from Mount Sinai, led out of bondage, made a duly constituted nation. The Messiah himself came as a Jew. And we have turned our back on him. It seems to me God would be justified in having a non-Jewish agenda. Get rid of us for sure. But he doesn't. Why? Grace greater than all our sin. Folks, this is a surprise. It's the surprise of grace. Can you believe him for it? If you can't, look at how he conducted himself with reference to Israel. When you are at your lowest and most degraded point because you've wandered from your shepherd king just as she had, come home. Believe him to be bigger than the bigness of your sin and draw on his record with Israel to buoy you up in your confidence in him. Oh God, if you forgave them and promised to restore and reassemble them, why not me? Grace greater than all our sin. It continues, verse 7, I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. The great shepherd king of the sheep will gather his weak, injured, lame, sin-sick sheep and bring them home to Mount Zion where he will rule and reign over them forever. As for you, verse 8, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Even the former dominion will come. The kingdom 
of the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, folks, see where it says tower of the flock? That is a very common feature in agricultural areas in the Middle East today. It was a watchtower, and the shepherd would climb it so as to give him a better vantage point, so as to intervene if there was a predator threatening the flock. That's what it was, tower of the flock. But here it is used with reference not to a person, but to a place, Jerusalem. As for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come even the former dominion. Jerusalem in former days, specifically under the reign of King David and Solomon, was this watchtower, this place wherein the daughters or inhabitant of Zion could be kept safe. Under David, under Solomon, there was a triumph, there was prosperity, there was victory over enemies, all the rest. It was a more settled and safe place than it surely is today. In fact, not since the time of David and Solomon can it be said by any stretch of the imagination that Jerusalem is this watchtower for its residents. If you go to Jerusalem today, it's a city filled with division and contempt, one people group for another, hatred, animosity, uh, it's a siege mentality. There are walls, there are guards, there are guns. It's not this place. And yet God says, I will restore it to its former dominion. It will come. Now, do you see the word hill as in hill of the daughter of Zion? Do you have a Bible that renders the word hill differently than that? Stronghold. Very good translation. Same thing. Hill or stronghold comes from the same Hebrew word. Listen to it. Ophel. O-P-H-E-L. Ophel. And I'll tell you why it is significant. It is the southeastern hill of the city of Jerusalem. It's the place where the original Jerusalem was established by King David 3,000 years ago. There he built his palace. Now, those who hate Israel deny a Jewish presence in that land that goes back that far. But the archaeologists have done major excavation work on the Ophel, city of David, and have unearthed his uh, palace, his city on the Ophel, proving that it was the site of Jerusalem. It was the Ophel. That's what it was referred to thousands of years ago. And God uses that very term. You don't get it in English here. He uses that very term to remind the people in Micah's day that it will be the Ophel once again. I will restore it. It's called Ophel in, in, uh, in, uh, today in Israel. Lord willing, we're going there, some of us, the end of April. I'm going to take them to the Ophel, to the city to the city of David. It's God saying, the former glory, the former dominion, forfeited for your sin, will be restored. It will be the Ophel again. Jerusalem will be once again a place where you will reside in safety. It will be a stronghold for its residents once again. Now, when will that happen? When Messiah returns. You see, the glory it possessed during the reign of King David will be re stored and amplified during the reign of King Jesus, David's son. Jesus is referred to, you see, as the son of David. 
Now, folks, this Jerusalem was a very key city in the ancient world. It will be the most influential city on earth again one day. It is mentioned 700 times in the Bible. It is mentioned zero times in the Quran. Zero times. In fact, there has not been much interest in Jerusalem when it was under Jordanian control. No major Jordanian leader ever decided to establish his capital in Jerusalem. It was, as the Bible said, overgrown, no interest in it. It ceased to be glorious and influential as it once was under David, under Solomon. But God said, hey, put, come in here. That's my wife who came late. Sit next to Lon right there. Here's Lon. Here's Lon right here. Here's my wife. She came because she wants a haircut. No, I'm not getting a haircut. Hey, please stop talking. We got a class here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. So uh, I have no idea what we were talking about. Yeah, 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 yeah. So here's what I want to tell you. I want to tell you about Jerusalem. Um, Micah's prophecy is that it'll become a city of great influence. I can prove it to you. Look back to verse 2. Brother Chuck covered this last week. I just refresh your memory with this. Verse 2, many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord. Look, from Jerusalem. Not from Rome, not from Babylon. From Jerusalem. Huh? Nations of the world will not go up to Jerusalem to conquer it. They will go up to Jerusalem f- to learn from King Jesus. It says right there, from it, his word will go forth. Folks, that's not happened yet. That is future time. That is not even close to having been <laughs> fulfilled yet. That's why Micah said it's in the last days. It hasn't happened at no point in human history has this ever partic- has this happened. But it will. And because it will, when the Lord Jesus returns to that place, even though you and I may be a little vague and confused about all these details, I assure you, Satan is not. Did you know he's a student of the Bible? and uses it towards his end, but he's a student of the Bible. And he found out that this is the place to which a King Jesus is going to return. He hates that because he wants to be king. That's the result of the fall. He was a very choice angel. Did you know this? And then he said, I want to be like the Most High God. Because of it, he was thrust down to earth from heaven. And we're stuck with him uh, uh, down here. So here's the thing about Satan. Whatever the Lord Jesus wants and attaches himself to, Satan wants to get. If Satan found out that the Lord Jesus is returning, not to Trenton, New Jersey, for instance, but to Jerusalem, Israel, then he wants to get it. And so he wants to get his man in place before the Lord Jesus returns. That's the whole business of the Antichrist. The Antichrist, don't you see? Anti-Messiah, <laughs> the counterfeit of Messiah. Satan can't create. He can only copy. God the Father has the Messiah, Jesus. Satan wants his Messiah, the Antichrist. Somehow the Antichrist will succeed in brokering peace, bringing the Jews And the Arabs together in the Middle East, promising the reconstruction of the temple, it will be built in Jerusalem. And then after a while, people will realize, oh my goodness, we've been deceived because he will require worship in it. 
Why? Because he found out there will be a temple in which the Lord Jesus will be worshipped. So the temple in which the Antichrist is worshipped is not authorized by the Bible. It comes to be destroyed. We're not told how. It is replaced with a temple in which the Lord Jesus will reign. Folks, because Satan knows all these things, the establishment of the Lord's kingdom on earth during the millennium will take place in Jerusalem. He wants that area. Folks, this is what's behind the Middle East conflict. It's not just political. That's why our politicians can't solve the problem. It's between Satan and Savior. So anyway, that's what it says. Now, having given Micah, having given the Israelites this glorious picture of their distant future, he now brings them back to earth and tells them what's going to happen in their immediate future. Verse 9. Now, see the word now? That's bringing them back from the distant future to their immediate future. Now, why do you cry out loudly? Is there no king among you, or has your counselor perished? That agony has gripped you like a woman in childbirth. You know what he's saying? Israel, your government is going to be carried off into bondage along with the rest of you. Your king who counseled with reverence to national decisions, who you looked to and depended on instead of the king of kings, he's going to be subject to the same uh, conquest and, uh, and subjugation and exile as the rest. You're not going to have a functioning king to look to. Your whole political structure is going to come out to an end with the effect that you will lament. You will cry out with agony as a woman in childbirth. It's a rather graphic illustration, you see. Verse 10, it is expanded. Writhe and labor to give birth, daughter of Zion, like a woman in childbirth. For now, you will go out of the city Now the city of Jerusalem, you'll go out of the city where you will dwell in the field. Good night. Micah, under inspiration, even knows what's going to happen. Listen to me. They're going to go out of Jerusalem and the invader, not mentioned just yet, the invader is going to take the populace of Jerusalem and it's on a long journey into exile. So first they're going to have to stay out in the field and then go on to, what does your Bible say? Babylon. Now listen, Babylon, do you know what present-day country Babylon was located in? Iraq. It's about 600 miles. Babylon would be about 600 miles from Jerusalem. That's a long trip. So the Babylonians will take the population of Jerusalem on a 600-mile journey. You've got to stop along the way. You're going to be out of your city, and you're going to be in the field, subject to the elements, and then we're going to subjugate you in Babylon. Now I want to tell you what is so significant about this. When Micah wrote this, Babylon was not the principal empire of the world. Not at all. They were no big deal. Yet, Assyria was the big empire of the world. Assyria. The Assyrians, not the Babylonians. But in 586 BC, the Babylonians did come in conquest. They did attack and besiege Jerusalem. They did subjugate the Jews and pull them off into bondage into Babylon. 586 BC. But when Micah is writing, it's 150 years before. Listen to me. Under inspiration, Micah is able to tell Israel her immediate future 150 years down the road. That is a mark of the inspiration of scriptures, folks, born out by history, by the way. Babylon is going to carry you, Israel, away into exile. 
And it says, writhe and labor to give birth. So let me just speak of that analogy a little more. I've not given birth, nor have I ever had a desire to, but I have witnessed it. And good night, you ladies really go through stuff to pop out that little critter. I was, I was there. And, uh, you know, this idea of the weaker sex, I don't know why you ladies are referred to that way. Because you're beasts, I'm telling you. I have seen, I mean, my wife, I am never messing with her. She is like, it was like this, like a weightlifter, you know, the exertion and the, you know, and would you like any ice chips? Get away! You know, this kind of stuff. So, thanks for coming. And so, uh, so here's the deal. It's like a rough thing. But you ladies don't turn back. You just do it because you're anticipating the blessing on the other end of all this excruciating labor. And that's the purpose of the metaphor. Israel, do this writhe and labor and all the rest. But there's blessing to follow. What's the blessing? Well, there it is at the end of verse 10. There, even in Babylon, you will be rescued. There, the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. God is not giving up on them. He is committed to them in spite of their sin. Why is that important? Because the same is true of God's response to you and me. He's not going to be finished with us if we have embraced his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus, by faith. Because then we are in his embrace irreversibly. And there's always, always this. I will redeem you. I will rescue you. Now, if you're one of those people who think God's through with Israel and has replaced them, then you don't have the benefit of this assurance you don't know really whether God is going to be there when you need him most because you have determined he already dumped Israel. When is he going to dump you? So you see, this has nothing to do with Israel, who, in my opinion, has no virtue of her own. There are no merits in my people to deserve God's response to us. That's why it's called grace. Grace doesn't play by the rules. Grace is not tit for tat. You do this, I do that. No. Grace is in spite of how you have responded to me. This is how I respond to you. So we sing amazing grace. And if you ever doubt it, please think of how God has dealt with Israel through the years and how he continues to. Well, now it goes on here, verse 11. And now many nations have been assembled against you who say, let her be polluted and let our eyes gloat over Zion. So there comes a day when the nations of the world come against Jerusalem, and here's the reason, to pollute her. Why? So that they can gloat over her. What does this mean? The intent of the ungodly is to pollute God's holy city, God's holy land, and God's holy people. You are his holy people. What does that mean? Perfect? 
without sin? No, only Jesus is. To be holy means to be set apart for a holy purpose. You're not common and profane anymore. Your thoughts, your bodies are not supposed to be rendered to unholy, ungodly purposes. You've been set apart. Do you know you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people set apart for God's own possession? So you need to know the ungodly influences of the world want to render you ungodly so that being ungodly, the ungodly can now gloat over you. That's why the world loves it when a prominent Christian falls into sin. Because then they could say, ah, you're no different than me. You see, you and who you belong to and the way you live and your value system is an irritant to ungodly people because you remind them of their sin and of God's holiness just by living the way you do. If you stop living the way you do, if ungodly influences can render you ungodly, then they can stand by and gloat and say, see, I know you're no different than me. You don't have any God. There is no God. Look at you. You're just, you see. So you need to know this. You're under assault right now. You see, your value system is an irritant to the value system of the world. You know, I was reading uh, President Clinton when he was in office voted in favor of what's called DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Amendment to the Constitution Act, Defense of Marriage Act, DOMA. And now he just made a statement uh, that he thinks time has come for us to get rid of that. So he's beseeching the Supreme Court to, uh, you know, get modern, so to speak, and open up the privilege of marriage to same-gender couples and so on and so forth. So President Clinton feels like we could take what's holy and modify it to suit the needs of society. See what I mean? So when you say, no, that's not true. God said marriage has to be between one man and one woman and sex is supposed to be in the context of that marriage and all the rest. And You start saying that, you're an irritation. Did you know that? That's why you're under fire, don't you see? Because the ungodly wants to render the godly ungodly so that they can gloat over those who call themselves godly. So nations are coming against Jerusalem. Why? To pollute, to desecrate, and to destroy. But verse 12, look at it. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. (laughs) Why don't they? Because they don't know the Lord. The leaders of the world, by and large, don't know the Lord, don't know his word, don't know. They're up to things not knowing, so is God. They have an agenda not knowing God's agenda. They don't, the nations of the world, they don't know the thoughts of the Lord. They don't understand his purpose, for he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. It's another agricultural metaphor. He's gathered them for destruction. Listen, they get together thinking, we're going to destroy Jerusalem. And God says, oh, no, you're not. I'm going to gather you together to destroy you. That's what happens in the last days. It has not happened yet, except in smaller form, in miniature. It has not happened to this extent. So, I want to read to you a passage where I believe this happens. Revelation chapter 16, beginning in verse 13. John speaking. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. Who are those three? That's the unholy trinity. 
That is Satan, that is the Antichrist, and that is the false prophet. You know why it's an unholy trinity? Because I mentioned to you, he's a counterfeiter. There is a holy trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, so Satan has to have his own trinity. Out of their mouths, it says in Revelation, three unclean spirits like frogs come. Like frogs. It doesn't say frogs. It says like frogs. It's an analogy. What's the deal with frogs? Jews don't eat frogs. Lon, I'm sorry, baby cakes. I know you Cajun people. You just eat. I mean, that's like a feast for you peeps. But, you know. Ah, but, and... And we would eat it, you know, the way you prepare it. I'm sure it's really good. But, but in that day, frogs were considered like a detestable thing to the Jews. That's what God is using to just show them the character of the frogs. And specifically, just to show you, it's an analogy. Look what it says next. They're not actually frogs. They are spirits of demons. You see? Look, God has angels. Satan has demons. You see, everything is counterfeited. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together. Now, this explains to me how the disparate, diverse nations of the world get together about anything. How do they get together to pull this off and attack Jerusalem? It's the spirit of demons. Don't you see? It's satanic deception. Is that far-fetched? Are you kidding me? Welcome to the real world. So somehow the spirit of demons, you know, through signs and stuff like that, get the leaders of the world to gather together, look what it says, for the war, but not their war. Look, for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. You see, they think they're getting together for a war they inaugurate against Jerusalem. No, God, they don't know the thoughts of God. His purpose is to gather them together to make war against them. And it says, they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Magedon, which means the hill of Megiddo, Armageddon, the place of this orchestrated campaign against Israel, which leads in the destruction of those nations who come against Israel. Why? Is there something so special about the Jews? No. It all has to do with the integrity of Almighty God. Has he said and will he not do it? Will he fulfill his promises? Folks, he is demonstrating through his response to Israel that you and I can count on him for everything he promised to Israel will be fulfilled. And so it says in verse 13, Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion, for your horn I will make iron, and your hoofs I will make bronze, that you may pulverize, that's a strong word, that you may pulverize many peoples, that you may devote to the Lord their unjust gain and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. God will render Israel invincible. Why? Because Israel is so hot? No, Israel is not. It's because God keeps his word. That's why. That's why. Is it far-fetched that nations of the world will rally against Israel? Are you kidding me? You have uh, Hezbollah, 
party of Allah. That's what Hezbollah means. Party of Allah. In Lebanon, just north of Israel, sweep over this way, you have Syria. Assad, his days are numbered. Who's he going to be replaced with? A very amicable diplomatic leader we can negotiate with? Are you kidding me? Al-Qaeda is already just about ready to take over all of Syria. Dip down into Jordan. Muslim Brotherhood is already stirring things up in the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. Dip down to Egypt. It's already under the control of the Muslim Brotherhood. Christians there are under persecution. There's virulent hatred of Israel, America, Christians, all the rest. Come up the Mediterranean coast to Gaza under Hamas control. Hamas is funded by Iran. Iran, led by a crazed Ahmadinejad, who welcomes American intervention, even Israel preemptive strike, so as to bring about the next caliphate. See, he, his understanding of Islam is for the next descendant of Allah to come on the scene. See, it's a counterfeit like the Messiah. You have to have world cataclysm. That's why he taunts us. Bring it on, America. Bring it on, Israel. You see? Then you have Russia, no friend of Israel, no friend of America. Then you have our landlord, China. <clears throat> You have countries like North Korea threatening to go nuclear. The present leader of North Korea, Korea, the youngest son of the one who just died, is crazier than his dad. The only one who, the only American I know of who thinks the leader of North Korea has it together is Dennis Rodman. (laughs) Read about that. We're in good shape. He's our ambassador to North Korea, Dennis Rodman. Yeah. Then you have, uh, you have Saudi Arabia, our ally. Are you kidding me? Our ally? Saudi Arabia? 15 of the 9-11 terrorists from Saudi Arabia. You talk about state-sponsored terrorism. Are you kidding me? Well, you have Venezuela. They just lost their leader, Hugo Chavez. You know, he just passed away. He's a peach. One of the most anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish, anti-American, South American leaders in a long time. He has succeeded in making most of Venezuela very anti-American, very anti-Semitic and all that. Don't you tell me it's far-fetched when we read about the nations of the world coming against Israel. Are you kidding me? It's not far-fetched at all. And once again, I ask you, why such attention to a dinky plot of land? It's dinky. It's because Jesus knows it will be the holy city of the Holy One. And in it will dwell his holy ones and give him glory. And Satan hates that. Therefore, he has to stir it up. It's not geopolitical. It is not geopolitical. It's spiritual. It's between Satan and and Savior. But God says Israel will prevail, and here's what she does. She devotes to the Lord the unjust gain and wealth of the nations. She conquers. And this is quite interesting, because in the ancient world, conquerors would set apart a portion of their spoils to their gods and their temples. And this predicts that Israel, victorious Israel, will devote the wealth she gains from her triumphs over other nations to adorn the temple of the Lord Jesus. 
in that day he will be known as the Lord of all the earth. Listen to me. He already is the Lord of all the earth, but not visibly so. You see? In that day he will be visibly known. You see, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess Jesus is the Lord. Now, come on. People make fun of him, take, caricaturize him, defame and blaspheme his name. But in that day, he'll be the Lord of all the earth. Okay, as we draw to a close, let me mention this. We've studied Micah thus far. And you have seen that in Micah day, in Micah's day, how dangerous and chaotic was life. And Brother Chuck has done a great job, in my opinion, of showing us how the same is true in our day. It's just as chaotic and unsettled. Yeah, I believe Chuck is right. Our world is as dangerously violent and our leadership may be just as corrupt as that of ancient Israel. But the announcement of God through Micah of God's plan for the future ought to remind us that God has a plan for the future. And... No matter what's going on, nothing can undo. Nobody can undo or frustrate the final goal God has for each one of us in Christ Jesus. So we may not understand why things are happening in our day the way they are. We may not have a clue as to how God is going to make it all better and straighten all things out. But we can look confidently at the future knowing that eventually God will put all these parts together in such a way that his plan is accomplished and the picture finally in that day will make sense. So I want to close with one verse of scripture with which you are familiar. Jeremiah, a contemporary of Micah, wrote this. And he wrote it to these very captives, Jews carried off into Babylonian exile. It's Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. You know it because you have applied it, I think, to your lives at various times. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. I know the plans I have for you. I believe it applies to you. But please don't jump over the original context. It's very fascinating to me how uh, today there's such ease with which we just jump over Israel and quickly opt into the application of all these promises to us. I think it does apply to us. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But what happened to Israel, the original intended recipients of a promise such as this? Jeremiah 29, 11 was written to Israel in bondage. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity that you might have a future and a hope. God originally promised it to Israel that she might have a future and a hope. Now you come in. If God was this way with undeserving Israel, surely he is this way with you who are embraced by your faith, embraced by the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what's happening in your day, God has a plan for your welfare and not for calamity that you might have a future and a hope. But if you erase Israel from the scene, you've just erased your own assurance. Don't you see? Israel is the building block upon which your hope is built. If you get rid of Israel because you think God got rid of Israel, you got to get rid of Jeremiah 29.11. If it doesn't hold true for them, how can it hold true for you? Don't you see? It's a real misuse of scripture. It's like, uh, if my people who are called by thy name turn from their ways and boom, 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 I will restore. You know, that's at the United Nations and 
you know, churches use it all the time when they want to call people to repentance. I'm cool with that. But folks, the context has to do with God speaking to Solomon when the temple was built and saying, I'll meet with the people here. If they only turn to me here at the temple, I will fulfill their promises to them. Folks, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's healthy to wrench verses of scripture out of context and then apply it to America or to us today, leaving Israel out. For instance, Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. Have you ever heard that one? Why haven't you heard the rest? To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. I have heard whole sermons that do part A and leave out part B. What happened to the Jews? I got to tell you something. If God, if God is finished with the Jews, God's going to be finished with the Jews. <laughs> now, what does that mean? Does it mean a Jew is saved because he's a Jew? No. Does it mean a Jew is better than anyone else? No. Perish the thought. Per- the opposite is true. The opposite is true. God said, I chose you because you're worse than any other people group. You're weaker than any other people group. What better people group through which to demonstrate my grace and mercy than you, the most undeserving people group on earth? I'm not trying to uplift Israel by no means. I want to uplift the God of all grace. It's a big, big difference. So what does this mean? How is a Jew saved? The same way anyone is saved, only through the Savior, faith in Jesus Christ. So remember that word remnant we read earlier on, I'll make the lame a remnant. That's how God fulfills his promises to Israel. In every day in Israel, even during its time of greatest sin, there's always been a remnant of those who have followed him. Folks, I don't want to call undue attention in an arrogant way to me, but I'm simply evidence of a remnant. That's all. No better than anyone. I'm simply... And so God in the end will fulfill his promises through a remnant of believers in Israel, especially at the end of the tribulation period. A remnant. He'll fulfill his promises uh, to Israel. And why is that... uh, Once again, why is that important? Because it validates Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, then will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? He spoke in Micah. He spoke in Jeremiah. He spoke in Ezekiel. He spoke in Isaiah. He spoke through the Apostle Paul. I say then, has God rejected his people? Have they stumbled so as to fall? May it never be. But by their transgression... Salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Oh no, God's not finished with the Jews and he's not ever going to be finished with you who put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the next time your faith wavers, I just want you to think about Jews in the land since May 14th, 1948. Explain it to me. Explain it to me. Listen, I got to tell you this. A guy in one of our classes This one or the last one, I don't remember. Because all you Gentile people look alike to me. No, 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 no. I'm messing around here. I'm messing, I'm messing. Uh, He gave me a helmet. He's a collector and he gave it to me, a very gracious thing. It's a British helmet. It's World War II. It's one of those that has a rounded thing and like a flat wide brim. You know what I'm talking about? But it's painted white. What's the deal? 
We know it's British because there's chips in it. And if you look through, it's camouflage, light-colored camouflage, the likes of which the British would have used in North Africa against Rommel. But it made its way to Israel, was painted white, and it was worn by the then Israel Civil Defense Organization in 1948. Why? They didn't have an army. They didn't have armament. They didn't have weaponry. They borrowed old British stuff. It's like going to a British Army surplus store. They put the hat on. They painted it white. I want to know how a flim-flam, ragtag group of peeps like that survives. They, they declared in the, themselves a country May 14th, 1948. The next day were, they were attacked by mighty Arab nations. How'd they get through with it? With white helmets. They got through with it because God keeps his word. How'd they get through the Six-Day War? How'd they get through the Yom Kippur War? How did they get through all this? Are they so good? No, that's nonsense. Are they so hot? That's nonsense. They got through with it because God is intent on demonstrating himself to be trustworthy. You could trust him. You can trust him for your new Jerusalem. You're going to heaven in spite of you because of the merits of Jesus Christ. You, you're not so hot either. Did you know that? You ain't so hot either for crying out loud. You too are lame and weak and on the run from God, and because he's enabled faith to well up in you and burst regeneration in you, you're on your way to New Jerusalem too. And the next time you waver, oh, maybe I forfeit it, maybe I'll lose it. What are you talking about? Look at God in his response to Israel. They're back in the land. You're going to make it into your land too. This is why I harp so much on Israel, because if you're right about Israel, you'll be right about just about everything else in the Bible. If you're wrong about Israel, you done be wrong about everything else. If God has replaced Israel, you're next. But he hasn't. You will never be replaced. I will never leave you or forsake you. Prove it, God. Israel. That's the proof. Okay, there you have it. Is it warm in here? Oh, it's just me. It's just me. Yeah. I'm on fire. Okay, we're going to pray. And then we'll go home. The best is yet to come. Hope. The God of hope sits on the throne. He calls the shots, nobody else. That's why we bow before you, Lord Jesus. Because you're king of kings and Lord above all lords. Now we happen to know it now. Yearn for others to know you. So do you. But one day everyone will. When you make visible your rule and reign on earth. Right now your kingdom is much more spiritual than geographical in then in that day physical geographical you will rule and reign from earth thank you for ruling and reigning uh, from the throne of our hearts right now what a joy what grace what hope lord jesus keep us from being compromised by ungodly influences who only want to gloat over us when we fall oh god author and perfecter of our faith. Make us to be strong and resilient and even resistant to worldly influences so that we could remain godly, distinct, holy as thou art holy. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you folks. Please make note of the fact we are early. Look at this. 1217. Talk about grace. Wow.